And this morning's passage is from the book of James. I'll be reading it in the same translation that uh, we are memorizing in, the CSB, because that's the translation that our family has been working through the book of James in, and uh, I'll keep confusing myself if I try and bounce in and out of translation. So James chapter 1, the first idea that he has in this book, James chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete lacking nothing James 2 or 1 verses 2 3 and 4 pray with me as we enter into this Heavenly Father this morning is yours we are yours and we would ask that we get out of the way, and whatever we have carried in here, God, that we, regardless of our experience, regardless of how our morning has gone, regardless of even where we are right now, that we, as we understand from your word and hear from your word, we ask that you would transform us in this moment and give us, as a church family, a healthier, more Christ-centered perspective on trials. Do it for our good. Do it for your glory. Move in power, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, it does seem at times like a lot of our life is spent managing pain in one way or another. It could be physical pain. uh, It could be ailments and dealing with that. It could be emotional pain. It could be relationship hurt. It could be church hurt. It could be family hurt. But so much of both who we are and what has formed us has been pain. Uh, You can have 400 great days in a row and one bad day, and what's the day that you remember? The bad day. You could have, you know, stellar, stellar performance reviews in your job, and then one time you are confronted on something that you did wrong, and what do you remember? Because we have this way in our human heart to always lean toward the things about us that are wrong or negative or frustrating, and neglect or forget the things that are good. And so much of what we do is managing the pain or frustration or suffering that we feel in a way that allows us to cope and live day in and day out. We're always, always, always dealing with hurt in one way or another, and sometimes we're not sure what to do with it. So when we hear a passage like this morning, I think we can give mental assent to it. We go, oh yeah, sure, I understand what it's saying, but the the links on a chain that James paints for us or gives to us, we have a hard time moving from point A in that declarative statement to how we view it might actually work out in our lives. Trials, pain, hurt, harm, like that doesn't seem like a good thing. So when James is like, consider it joy, we're like, I don't really like you that much, James. You can move. If you've read the book of James, then you know that it is uh, a difficult book to organize. Some people call James the Proverbs of the New Testament, where it's just like, how in the world do these relate? You're talking about this idea, and then you jump into that idea. And so uh, many people just look at James thematically. They go, what are things that James talks about? 
He talks about suffering. He talks about uh, the, our speech. He talks about teaching. He talks about favoritism. He talks about rich and poor. He talks about pain. He talks about true religion. And they try to find themes through James because unlike Paul, who liked to kind of present for his letter like an entire argument, like, you know, and we love Paul because we can outline it really well. It's like, you know, Roman numeral one, Roman numeral two, Roman numeral three. If you try to give James Roman numerals, you're just going to end up just taking a nap because it doesn't work. But you can still, and I would guess this is the case for anybody in here who's uh, somewhat familiar with the New Testament, is you could probably take James and you are more familiar with the content of the book of James and the statements of the book of James than you are most New Testament books. Because it's just really easy for you to pull these ideas out. Why? Because James is really good at being concrete. He's really good at helping you see and feel what is going on in life. Sometimes when we read a New Testament epistle, and like next week we're going to be in Galatians, as Paul is kind of laying out justification by faith, and you're going, he's way up in the clouds trying to write about an idea, and I'm trying to bring the clouds like down into real life. Well, James doesn't, James is like, I don't even live in the clouds, I don't even know what a cloud is, I'm just going to write to you about like earthy, earthy life stuff. <clears throat> and so you can't read three verses in James without going, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. Like, I know how that works. I've been there, seen that, experienced it. Uh, so wanted to do James this morning because James writes from a perspective that many of us deal with. Now, James was a Jewish leader, well-known <clears throat> in the Jerusalem church, present in the significant activities of the Jerusalem church, and like I said, likely the half-brother of Jesus. He came to faith late. James didn't believe right away. In fact, there's statements in the Gospels like his brothers didn't believe, him, believe in him, which would make sense because if my brother were walking around acting like God, I would probably be like, eh, I'm not too sure about that. <clears throat> so James was late to the party on his conversion, but at the same time, I think his conversion is a great statement about who Jesus is because James had to get past the sibling rivalry and go, yeah, my brother's God. <clears throat> he had to move past this moment and get to a spot where he confessed that his brother was the savior of the world. And so James' statements about faith are great, and they're incredibly memorable for us, <clears throat> and he is reorienting ourselves to ideas of the Christian faith. Now, why this sermon, and why now? Well, James is one of the earliest epistles, so is Galatians, uh, but one of the earliest epistles in as we kind of move out in the history of the church. So if you're reading the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15 is the Jerusalem council. <clears throat> and these ideas of uh, Gentile and Jew relationships and what does God saving us and giving us his spirit actually mean. So the Jerusalem council is Acts 15. Galatians likely came before the Jerusalem council. Some people would say it didn't. It's hard to sometimes place, but it seems like the conclusion of the Jerusalem council came after the, the information in Galatians. Some people would place the, God, or the book of James in that kind of same category as prior to the Jerusalem council where they're working out some stuff. But James is early, Galatians is early, <clears throat> and James is written to Jews. In fact, that first verse, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad or in the diaspora or scattered amongst the nations, he's writing to Jews about walking through life, and a big theme in James is trials, and he's going to give us a start out from the very beginning in verse 2, <clears throat> a new perspective, rejoice in trials. Rejoice in trials. I already don't like what he says <clears throat> in my own kind of mind and how I operate through life. Because I don't look at trials as a good 
thing if I'm just kind of left to my own device. I'm like, yay, trials, like this is awesome. And we don't mean in this like going to trial in court, which when sometimes when you think of trial, you think, oh yeah, rejoice that you're going to court, like that doesn't apply to me. Rejoice in trials, things that you are brought through, and listen to the words that he gives about it. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Consider it, which then means, I would say, you have a choice to make. Consider it means don't think about it like this, but consider it like that. So don't move in this direction, but move in that. So consider it a great joy whenever, whenever, like whatever trial it is, whenever you experience various trials, which isn't very comforting for James to tell us first whenever it happens and that there will be various ones. Various trials. He doesn't define it. Just various trials. Now, if you look through the book of James, you will see certain trials that this church is clearly going through or the believers of this church are dealing with. So they're dealing with like uh, upper class, lower class type things. There's rich among them and there are poor among them, which then might manifest itself in favoritism, which is why he says, don't show favoritism, right? What if a rich person walks in and you're like, hey, you sit over here, but a poor person walks in, you're like, ah, get over there, right? So ways that you are viewed because of what you might earn. If you have illness, if you are in sin, those are all things that James hints at, right? Confess your sins to one another. Pray for uh, one another. Uh, Praying for things that you don't get because you're being selfish, uh, right? All of these things kind of exist within the categories that James is writing through. And so we know that those are clearly ones regarding our status in the world, regarding sin and perhaps discipline. But what he says is considerate joy. View it in such a way that it is joyful. And so I just go, does that mean smile? Like, yay, you know, I lost my job. Yay, I have cancer. Yay, I'm going through this. Like, like, do you smile about it? Should I just be happy that I'm experiencing these things? Can I not be grieved by it? Well, joy, right? Joy isn't like a smile. Joy is a perspective. Consider it joy. He doesn't say feel joy, but consider it joy. Have a perspective that gives you joy, that allows for joy whenever you experience various trials. And he doesn't just leave it at that because he's James. And James isn't going to leave you with the idea and say, see you later, good luck. But he's going to give you the reasons, and the reasons are the things for us that are difficult to grab onto. Whenever you experience various trials, because, well, there's the reason, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, steadfastness, the ability to run and last. The testing of your faith produces endurance, the ability to stand up in a difficult situation. Well, why do trials, now think about it, he's linking trials with endurance. Why do trials produce endurance? And he calls it also the testing of your faith. Because much more so than good days, and good experiences, bad days and bad experiences force you to deal with how you view God and the world. 
If, you, if, you, if you're having a good day, you're like, man, God's blessing me. This is awesome, right? People who know God and don't know God, when they're having a good day, they are so happy to claim God is the creator of it. When you're having a bad day, it becomes way different. You're trying to figure out what's going on here. So consider a joy whenever you experience various trials because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance and the linking of the testing of your faith and endurance and trials. Why link these things together? Because like a muscle, things are not strengthened unless they are challenged. If you do not exercise your muscles, you will not stay the same strength. You will get weaker. If you do not exercise your body, your body doesn't just kind of go, well, we're just going to sustain here. You, it, without resistance, you are not strengthened. And so the testing of your faith essentially creates this crucible where you have to deal with how you view God. And what is God doing? And that might be for a moment where you go, why would God put me here? And you might even be frustrated about it, right? Why would God have me here? Why would I experience this? That is a huge question to ask. But you don't stop there, right? Because you have to consider it pure joy. You have to, right? Because the scriptures say it, so i got to be glad about it. So then you have to go, okay, well, why did God put me here? And you actually have to work through that because if you don't work through why you should consider it joy and how this produces endurance then you just kind of look at the you know the weight machine at the gym and go nah I'm not gonna mess with that I don't want it I'm just gonna go ahead and act like it doesn't exist so the ability to stand up in trials happens because we have to understand how God relates and is present even within the trial and what God is doing through the trial. Here's something that stinks though. Sorry, it's just kind of how it goes. Sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you can do all of the spiritual and mental gymnastics that you want to try and go, this is, you know, here's what God's doing. And at the end of the day, you're like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why this situation is better than that situation. And in that moment, you have to go, but God does. But God is aware, and God knows, and thus, I'm going to be joyful about it, because God is still doing something, even though I cannot fully understand what God is doing, and when it's going to be done, quite honestly. But then, the question that I would ask because the testing of your faith produces endurance, the ability to stand up under it. You should, I ask this question, you may not because you're holy. Why does endurance matter? I mean, honestly, why does it matter that I endure or not? Why does it, I mean, a lot of people have given up on life. They've just kind of gone, you know what, let's just ride out the clock and be miserable. That just works, that works. There are a lot of people who choose misery over joy. So why don't we just kind of lump ourselves in with there? Why in the world does endurance matter for our faith? I'll give a couple of reasons. One, life is hard. It is difficult to walk through life faithfully. The longer you live, the harder it gets. The more you experience, the more hurts, the more relationships get damaged, the more 
goofy things you say and do and have to deal with. Because now there's more tape on your life. And so as that continues on and you're dealing with what you see and what you do and how you live and what you say and the things that you can't get back. And you've had more time to watch friends go through illnesses and family die and people get addicted and people struggle and people lose out. And you go, why in the world is this happening? The longer life goes on, the more difficult it seems to be. And if you do not have a perspective that considers life and trials as joy, you might as well throw in the towel. Why do this? Why live like this? Why feel this way? Because we're not just saying put on a happy face, but have joy. Which means you know that God is doing something in and through the trial. If we don't have endurance, then we will likely tap out. And we cannot get to the end of our lives well without endurance. I, I don't usually talk to people about this idea, but I hear it volunteered to me. But I don't know a person that I can think of. Maybe they exist. But I don't know a person who says to me, you know what, where I am in life is exactly where I thought I would be. Like, I am in the spot I thought I would be, and I'm going through the things I thought. When I was 15, and they said, write out a 100-year plan, I wrote it out, and I'm at year 65 of that plan, and I am crushing it. No one does that. No one does that. We can't get to the end without endurance. And I'll hear people way more often go, uh, I never thought that I would be here. Good, bad, or otherwise, I would have never guessed that I would have been here. This is not where my life was kind of tracking when I started to consider where I wanted to be. What's your five-year plan? Like, to stay alive? Like, that's kind of many people's. And so if we don't have the right perspective on how we experience various trials, then we will not be able to endure them. And endurance, the ability to stand up under it, is significant because as life goes on, the trials become more difficult. And as they become more difficult, if we don't have the strength that is given to us by God to stand up under it through the using of our faith, the testing of our faith in those situations, then we will not be able to walk through them faithfully. So, then, this kind of sets this up pretty easily, here's your perspective, consider it a pure joy whenever you experience it. Why? The reasoning, because... Trials produce endurance. And then he goes from that and ends with a new result. Endurance produces maturity. Verse 2, 3, and 4. Here's your perspective. Now look at why, because this produces endurance. And endurance is needed so that when you get to the end, you are mature and complete. So he says, and let endurance have its full effect. Allow it to do everything that it needs to do in your life so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, what is this idea of maturity and completeness? Because if you are reading what God's doing and you get to stay with us in the reading plan all the way through December, like clearly the Lord is not done with what he's working out in us and there's a new heaven and there's a new earth and there's things that are coming where sin is eradicated and life with God is perfect. 
and it doesn't happen on this side of eternity. But maturity and completeness means it's that it has brought to bear for us the things that it needed to bring to bear so that we can live our lives and hear well done and live for the Lord in whatever situation that he might bring our way. Maturity and completeness to be able to stand and understand and be joyful through trials. Which then gives me an uncomfortable thought as you think two, three, and four together. Christians need trials we actually need them because if maturity is something that we want to be working toward and trials produce endurance and endurance produces maturity then you can follow that connection and go well then we need trials now I don't think this means that, like we go home and or you're around like lunch you're like dear Lord thank you so much for our church family, and we would just pray that you would bring lots of trials our way because we want to be hecka mature, right? Like, I don't think then it produces in you this feeling of, well, I will just now pray for trials and kind of run into trials because it's way more fun. No, it's that trials come, the perspective needs to exist within trials of joy, and joy looks past the trial at the result. So we're looking at the result, which is maturity. And if our goal is to reflect Jesus in this life and to better reflect Jesus, then our ability to endure trials allows uh, for us to reflect our Lord better. So we need trials, thought number one. Along with that, then, God uses trials. God uses trials to bring to bear something in us because he knows what's best for us. And this is one of the harder things for me to consider is that pain produces something better for us and for the Lord than we are often willing to accept. But I want to talk for a moment about just the evangelistic, the the God-glorifying ways that trials can be used. Because when a believer has a perspective that is different from just saying, oh, that's life. Because that's life is actually a pretty hopeless statement. It's kind of fatalistic. Oh, that's life. That's just how things go. Things are bad. Things are frustrating. They're not the way that you want them to be. But it has no reconciling mechanism. It has no way to process, well, that's, why is that life? Right? Like, then you spend your life trying to make that not be what you get. So when I say the evangelistic or the God-glorifying, the way that this is seen or makes God more seen and visible in this world, when you can go through something, and it might take weeks, months, years, or decades, but when you can walk through something and you can latch on to the Lord and count it joy because you know that he is working something out, the world doesn't have a category for that. There's not a category for joyful trials. No, we're going to go through it, and we're going to be glad about it. One of the ones that always, uh, I always think of in these moments is when parents watch their kids go through illness, significant illness. Not just like, oh, they got strep, which is like every week of our life. But when you watch your children go through something, 
And you might not even be sure if they'll survive. And you see them able to talk about the hope they have in God and what God can bring to bear through it, what He can do, and how they are counting upon Him over anything else. I just go, that's different. That's different. It's different. I, I, you, you can't explain it. You can't make sense of it because all you want to do is weep and wail. And I don't get that. And I don't see that. And I've been face to face with parents who have lost children and they've said to me, we just want God to be glorified through this. It doesn't mean that we want it, right? Like, it doesn't mean we want this outcome. We would prefer this outcome. <clears throat> it means that we want to see God use this to the full extent that he can to bring about something in us that we could not bring out ourselves. We want to run the race that God has put before us. And if this is a part of it that he will use, not, I would say not that he delights in part of what exists because the world has fallen and illness is here and sin is real and the consequences of it are both in our lives and in our world and we come into it every single day. But when they can look at that and go, God is going to form us in this, he is going to allow for us to reflect him more. When I see that time and time again, I look at parents or I look at friends or I look at family and I just go, you know something that the world doesn't know. Because you're not just trying to go, how do I get out of this? That's so often how we handle difficulty. How do I get out of this? Now, in just a workout sense, there are times I'm working out and I'm just kind of like, now I'm done. I'm out. I'm out. Uh, and that's fine because I opt in and I opt out of those situations. But often with trials, you can't opt out. You either handle it well or you handle it poorly. But you can't really opt out. So we need them, and God uses them, and they mature us. And it doesn't mean it makes it easy, it doesn't mean it makes it fun. But when we come to faith in Jesus, we don't just go, oh, yay, this is fun and this is easy. Yay, I'm so glad. No, it's that we realize as a church that God can use these things. So again, for our perspective, in whatever illustration that you know, pastors use or churches use, uh, the one that I always come back to for the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. It's just where I live. Like, it's a marathon, not a sprint. If you think that living for Jesus is all about sprints, then you will be let down. But we love flash-in-the-pan success. We love churches that can do cool things really quickly. And we don't have an enduring and an abiding perspective that sees <clears throat> what God is forming through us and in us through difficult times as a good thing. But it doesn't take much research to know that in places where the gospel is often the most persecuted, it is also the most richly believed and has people coming to faith. Where, when there is cost or trial associated with following Jesus, then those who follow Jesus know what's up. And they can then go, yeah, I may die. I, I follow uh, 
prayer request of a family that I know that's doing ministry in a largely Muslim part of Africa. And one prayer request was like, praise God that this guy who has come to faith, that his family has been okay. Praise God that things have been well. And so I write down my little prayer request in my notes, like, oh, you know, when I pray for this, praise God for it. <clears throat> I think maybe a couple weeks later, the update was his son was killed for his faith in Jesus. His son was killed. And what would happen in that moment? Because for us, trials are like, oh, I stubbed my toe, you know, maybe I shouldn't go to church today. For them, it's, I believe in Jesus and my whole family might be murdered for it. That feel a little different? Doesn't it kind of start to feel like maybe our view of trials is wimpy? That like, we, we opt into gathering together if we can, if our schedules aren't too full, if we're not tired from Saturday because we stayed up too late. Like, we just opt in. We go, man, you know, life's really tough. My kid's failing three classes. I'm like, so what? Like, kids fail things. They do well sometimes. They don't do well sometimes. They're not suffering. We're probably just letting them not study. And when you start to realize, like, what people in the church deal with, real, real, day after day, like, I actually might not be alive at the end of this day because of my faith but I consider Jesus worth it? That changes someone. How in the world can these people endure these situations time after time, moment after moment, day after day, year after year, where they are mocked and persecuted and laughed at and disrespected and they lose their jobs? Sure, they lose their jobs. They lose their lives. They lose their family. Why? Because Jesus is better. Consider it. A great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Why for us I think the truths of the passage are what the passage is. We go, hey, I get that. Why then is it so hard for us to grab hold of this perspective? And one of the reasons that I think in our world it is difficult is because we have this faulty assumption that Jesus is just one of the things that we pack in the bag with us when we go through life. So like you have, like I have my friend section and I have my fraternity section and I have my family section and I have my job section and then I have my Jesus section over here and all of these together allow me to get through life and when you read the statements of Jesus in the gospels this is what he does nope 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 just me that's the only thing that you get and so when we try and go through our lives and manage all of these little pieces and go, well, how would Jesus do this in this situation? Jesus, could you flavor my idea here? Could you flavor what I'm going through? We don't have a category of Jesus is the supreme and best part of our lives that makes everything else matter and everything else significant. Then, of course, it becomes really confusing for us when we handle trials. Because the true thing is that we do not see him as best. Best. 
We don't see who he is and what he has saved us from as the most significant thing in our lives. But just the way that makes everything else a little happier. And so Jesus becomes a garnish. He doesn't become our savior. He just becomes a side item in what we do and how we live life. And when we need it, we kind of go to the Jesus dispenser and go, you know, can you please tell me how to handle this better? Rather than a statement like we hear James make, which is consider it a joy. And you're in a moment, right? You're there and you're suffering, or you're struggling through something, or you're experiencing a trial, or your family's going through something, and you haven't stopped and gone, how is this joyful? Because we get into moments of self-protection and go, I don't know how to make this joyful. I have no idea how this is good. But let's remember some of the statements, or maybe one of the most significant statements that we heard Jesus make in the past couple of weeks when he's giving the Great Commission or when he's doing Acts 1-8, that verse, right? I'm with you always. I'm with you always. So a guy like Peter, the Apostle Peter, who when he is, uh, history says, or tradition would say, was crucified upside down because he did not consider crucifixion in the manner of his Lord to be something that he was worthy of. Or when you look at a guy like the Apostle Paul who would just kind of go through life and be like, yeah, this is no big deal. Sure, I've been beaten. Sure, I've been stoned. Sure, I have been lost at sea and people have whipped me. That's fine. Why? Because Jesus, he's there. And we haven't trained our hearts to consider perspective. In, in a couple, a few weeks ago, or maybe it was now months ago, I, I lose time. <clears throat> we talked about it like this. We have options when we are experiencing trials and places to which we might run, or people to whom we might run. And if we don't run to other <clears throat> brothers and sisters in the faith who will help us think about life as joy then we will run to people who will tell us how to get out of it. And what you need and what I need, be it people in our community groups, people in our church family, in our lives, who when they hear what we're going through, go, don't stop. Don't stop running. Do not stop believing. Do not stop hoping. Do not stop praying. Do not stop counting Jesus as better. That is what we need together in those moments. And yet we will run to people who will say stop. Or we'll latch on to friends who tell us in those moments what we want to hear versus what we actually probably need to hear, which is God is doing something. But that's a pretty big theme of the New Testament as you read it along with us for the rest of the year. Like, it's a pretty big theme to see people going, God is doing something. He's moving, and he's there, and he's present. You are not abandoned. But it's one of the hardest things for us to latch on to. Because our suffering muscle isn't very developed. Because we find ways out. And we don't process it with people who love us and care for us and will help us. And when I talk to friends or family who are walking through things, and they'll say statements like this. I'm not sure if we will see the other side of it before our lives are over or the Lord returns. 
and that's okay. Because they don't, they don't like, they go, it's been 10 years like this. It's been 12 years like this. It's been 13 years like this. It's okay. God is working it out. We kind of go two weeks. Man, two weeks? I need some, I need help. It's been two weeks. You're kind of like, call me when it's been 75 years, right? Whatever it might be, but we, our endurance of those things is not very strong. Our ability to walk through those is not very strong. And so when we hear considerate joy, we don't have a category. I heard a story, this was years back when I was in college, of a guy who was, uh, lost his arms for his faith in Jesus. And he was talking about gratitude. And this was the thing he was grateful for. I'm grateful that I was one of the first. Grateful that I was one of the first. And with the arms he had left, he was praising his God. Because he was not concerned about the fact that he did not have hands. Consider it joy. When I talk to friends who in my mind are whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie, though I know that's in reference to John the Baptist and Jesus, but when I view them, view them as just so far above who I am, who've lost children and lost family and walked through it, and God, we just want God to be glorified. And I kind of go, who are you? When I talk to somebody who loses a spouse, and they're okay, I'm like, how come I'm more of a mess about it than you are? Because they're considering it a pure joy. When I see someone going through something in their marriage or in their family and they're glad about it, not because they just like pain, because that's odd, but because they know that the Lord uses those. And one of the reasons I like the book of James and I like the New Testament is because there's a reason that we have this category. There's a reason the authors of the New Testament can give us this category and give us this example. Because Jesus did it. Who for the joy set before him, what? Endured the cross. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The reason you and I can consider our trials joy is because we had a Savior who did the exact same thing. So when the Apostle Peter is talking to people, and he's like, so what? The world treats you wrong because you're you know, suffering because you're following Jesus. That's what the world did to Jesus. And you're kind of like, Peter, could you chill a little bit? Like, I want you to be a little more coddling of me. And he's like, I'm not going to coddle that. He doesn't. He's like, when you're going through tough times, it's okay. Jesus did. When you lose your job because you want to keep your integrity, that's fine. Jesus lost his life for that reason. You're okay. When you're going through something that's going to end in your death, guess what? Jesus' life ended in death. And then he rose. So have hope. Because what God's bringing to bear in you and what God is working out in you is not done. And we can have assurance of that. I have, you know, as a pastor, especially a pastor in North America, 
you have all these really goofy temptations, right? Like, oh, I want my church to be bigger, I want it to have more money, or I want it to have this, or I want it to have that. If Genesis Church could be nothing but the church that endures through trials with joy, I'm in, right? If it could be nothing but the church, where when people are walking through stuff, it has like a crowd of people cheering them on and going, get after it. See what God does. Have hope. Do not stop running. He will continue to sustain you. His spirit is strong enough and big enough and powerful enough to bring you through this thing with joy. Think about what God's going to do when you're through this. And you're like, I don't want to think about that. You stink. Stop talking to me. But we need that, don't we? And when people hear us go, I'm at my end, and they can say to us, no, you're not. No, you're not. Because God's not done. And you can say, I don't want this. Jesus said that. If there's any other way for people, the world, to be redeemed, let's go ahead and bring out the master plan now. But if not, this is it. So we look at that. We have the example in our Savior. And if our church could be nothing but the church that suffers with a great joy in what the Lord will bring to bear, and we're never popular, and there's never a news story about us, and no one's ever like, man, I heard about your church, it's awesome. Like, I kind of want to stay away from your church, because you guys all get sick and die, and you're glad about it. That seems weird. <laughs> you go, yeah. Yeah, it is weird. Because God's good. And we can rejoice, consider it a joy. So let's be that together. And whatever you might be walking through, even in this moment and even in this day, it's as easy, I would say, in this way, it's just going, Lord, forgive me for my wrong perspective. Help me know what it means to consider it joy. Help me look to what you will produce through it, not just how I feel in it, 